This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers. And if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Wadams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but there, he takes up space and, and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles, actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's, it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time, then, then, I, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married. But then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. And, but What's I, happening? I said, Mil, did, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we, I, I was told uh, I could have not, some new people coming it, in, and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was told okay. I could stay... Excuse me, yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. But Milton Wadams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films, now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. 
Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of VirtualStapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler. Perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the Swingline to the Boston stapler, but I kept my Swingline stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the Swingline stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll set the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse. And we got to order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com, stapler injuries, stapler stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all, tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. Ouramericannetwork.org to learn more. Our American Stories, where we tell you stories about everything. History, sports, the arts, love, faith, and courage. And today, faith brings us the story of the Baker family. There are neighbors here in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis and broadcast from a small town. And we love bringing our stories to big towns and small towns across the country. Take it away, Faith. 
Who's your favorite princess? The princess Elsa. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in my family, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what princess I like. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> that was Lily Baker. She's your normal four-year-old that loves princesses, the DreamWorks animation movie Trolls, Chick-fil-A, and singing. But she doesn't have the life of the normal four-year-old. Lily has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is a type of cancer where the bone marrow makes too many immature white blood cells called lymphocytes. She was diagnosed in March 2017 when she was just three years old. Her parents, Nicole and Lee Baker, were naturally shocked. But today, they are here to share their journey with us. Here is Nicole Baker, the mother of four-year-old Lily. Well, it's just the three of us. We live here in Oxford. We're in Oxford. We're in Oxford. And Lee and I are from different parts of the country. Lily's dad... I'm from Seattle. He's from Eupora, Mississippi. We met in Anastasia School in Jackson, Tennessee, and then had her after we were married, moved down here, and we found out that Lily had leukemia. We found out she was sick because she developed a really high fever. Uh, Lee and I were out of town at an anesthesia conference, and she was staying with her grandparents. They called us and said that she had a 105-degree fever, and they gave her Tylenol. They didn't really know what to do, so we said to take her to the ER. They took her in, and they just said that she must have an ear infection. And I wasn't really satisfied with that answer because she's a very healthy girl, and she had a high fever. And They took her home. She started throwing up the antibiotics and just got sicker and sicker. So we got on a plane, started coming back home. We asked them to take her back to the ER, and she was really not doing good by that point. She was pale, throwing up, and not really with it, and they finally drew blood and saw that some counts were off, so we took her up to Memphis and saw that her hemoglobin, her metacrit were down. They were suspecting leukemia, took her to St. Jude, and confirmed the diagnosis of leukemia. And she got blood immediately, and we were pretty scared. She was pretty scared, too. A port is a small disc made of plastic or metal about the size of a quarter. This sits just under the skin. Then a soft, thin tube called a catheter connects to the port to a large vein. This is how Lily receives her chemotherapy medicines. They go through a special needle that fits right into the port. This would be scary for anyone, let alone a four-year-old. She has a little Paw Patrol animal rubble. She has to hold Rubble's hand when she gets her port accessed or when she gets de-accessed, and she's okay. Uh, we count to, to take it out, and, and then we, we put it in. They put it in, I hold Rubble's hand. It was a shock that this fever turned out to be something more. Now Lee and Nicole found themselves in the midst of cancer treatments. She, it's 120 weeks total of chemotherapy. She gets chemo every day at home by mouth, and then we go in every single Thursday for her to get her port accessed and to get IV chemo. 
and about once a month she has to have she gets put to sleep for medication to be injected into her brain and spinal cord and we only have to do that a couple more times and then I think we have about like a year and a half left of treatment. How did Lee, Lily's father, handle all of this? Oh my gosh. Um, I, being from the country where we didn't go to the doctor for anything, um, and especially when you're dealing with kids where they're sick and then they're better and they're sick and they're better, she, uh, when she got sick, I was telling Nicole, she's fine. You know, it's she has the flu, she has strep or whatever, and she ended up in the emergency room twice that weekend, and then at Le Bonner, um a day later, and and when we realized it was it was something serious and she had cancer, um, it it changed the whole way I look at things now. I mean, and you would think being in the medical world where you see things, where you see people little things turn into big, serious disease processes and things that, that I would have already been been like that. But it was very, I was shocked, you know, when she got diagnosed. And uh, now I look at things a lot differently when, when it comes to, uh, you know, her getting sick. I see how, you know, serious things can be. If you want to think that everything's going to be Okay. Lee reacted like any parent would. You never think that it will be your own child to get sick. It's a lot harder than I think people would imagine. They see us day to day. Lily's happy, smiling. But when we started this journey, this is multifactorial. Lily got diagnosed with leukemia and... Nine days later, actually, this Friday, we lost her twin brother and sister. And it was just solely due to the stress of having her being diagnosed with leukemia. Just being so afraid that you are going to lose your child is is the worst feeling imaginable. You're so frightened. You feel so vulnerable. You do feel alone and everyone tells you it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, and you just want to yell, this isn't okay, this is never going to be okay. Lily was just going to start chemo, and I was about six months pregnant. Everything was going well, and fortunately we had her grandma with us that day, and I just went into labor while she was about to get her chemotherapy, and I Lee took me out the door and we had to leave her and it was her first time getting the IV chemo. We're scared to death. It was the worst day of my life. It was terrible. And while I'm losing these babies, I'm scared for Lily because she's now at the hospital without me and Lee and we don't know what's happening to her. And then... And it was so frightening that day. They had called, and Lee had to go back to the hospital because Lily developed a fever. I thought God was taking all of my children that day. Lee left. I was all alone. Some of my friends in Memphis came up, and I was just so scared and so overwhelmed. The next day, I was discharged from the hospital, 
and I had to go back and take care of her. Like there was no time to cry about the baby. I had to be a hundred percent on to take care of this frightened child. And so there, it was just, it was excruciating. I just, we stayed at the Tri-Delta place on St. Jude's campus and all day long we were afraid trying to take care of her. And then at night I'd sit in the bathroom and just cry because I didn't have my babies and I, I just couldn't believe all this was going on. But then day after day, just taking care of her and then she developed the blood clot. Then she was in the ICU. Then she was in surgery every morning, afraid that she was going to die. So it's like we just had to push it aside. And I mean, she's still getting treatment. We still almost have to push it aside. And but we had to have friends come stay with her at St. Jude because she couldn't leave the hospital so we could go to the twins' funeral. I st still don't feel like I've had enough time to recognize their life. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the Baker family's trials, Lily's. Again, this story out of Little Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just an hour south of Memphis. More on the Baker's family story here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and we've been listening to the Baker family's story Lily's story and let's pick up where faith last left off we left off with Nicole and Lee sharing about Lily's diagnosis and then the loss of their twins what is life like now since the diagnosis for the Baker family? Things do start to get better, but she, besides the medicine she has to receive every day, she gets injections in her abdomen twice a day, so we have to give her a shot. And that took a long time to get used to. She'd scream and cry. She'll get sick more often than regular kids because she has a low immune system. So seeing her in pain and when she's suffering and when she's scared, it just makes you feel so helpless as a mom. And not only, you know, just grieving loss of a normal childhood for her, we're also grieving the loss of two other children and her family members. So it's just a lot of grieving. And it's something that I don't think anyone besides other mothers with sick children really understand. A lot of things had to change. What about work? We both do anesthesia, and we, we love our jobs. We work for a group called Willow Anesthesia in town. Our, our workplace has also been a, a huge support to us. They, I was off work for about three months while Lily was diagnosed, and they just were like, it's fine. You come back to work when you're ready. 
We've continued to work. Somehow we thought it would be best for Lily for us to just continue on a normal life. Uh, once a week, I'd take her to St. Jude. Medications, doctor's appointments, and lots of tears. A situation like this would put stress on any relationship. As far as our personal relationship, when we first found out about the diagnosis and lost the children, it was like survival mode. But, and we didn't have much time to really tend to our relationship. And I guess we just always knew that we needed to take care of each other as well. We grieve in different ways. We handle things differently. Um, So the best that we could do is just be understanding and be there for each other because we're both hurting in different ways. But I do feel like it has brought us closer together as a family because we've gone through things that most people never will have to experience. We just found a way just to make it work. She has cancer, but it doesn't define her, and we have a normal life. We're normal family. I mean, as normal as it can be, right? Having a child that is sick and needs daily doses of medicine is nothing close to normal. She started out with uh, Donna Rubison, Bencristine, 6MP. She gets dexamethasone, IV methotrexate. I don't know how someone in the medical, someone not in the medical field does this because keeping track of all the medications, because not only is there the chemotherapy medications, but there's the medications to counter the negative side effects. So we have to give her Zofran every morning because the 6MP she gets at night makes her sick. We have to give her gabapentin or morphine because when she gets vincristine, it makes her back and legs hurt for a week. Um, So I make what we call medical world a medicine reconciliation sheet and I make this at home and I get my ruler out and about once a month I make this long sheet of all of her medicines what times a day she needs the medicines and there's about 10 11 that she needs each day and I put a highlighter so we check it off there has been times when I'm sitting making this long sheet for the month and I just hate it I absolutely hate it and I cry, and I'm like, this isn't fair. This shouldn't, this shouldn't be my life. Why am I sitting making this medicine sheet? Then, you know, just we make it part of our life, check it off and move on. I think I'm the one that has the harder time separate. Like, I'm emotional, and I'm on all day long. I have to take care of Put on a smile, you know. We have to show her what a happy home is about. Like, we're not sad all the time. We go to work. Um, But I don't get much time to grieve or be sad. But the reality is, like, it is sad. There's so much going on. So I run, and I'm all alone on the trail. I start crying like a a weirdo. Um, But then I go home, and it's fine. Cook some dinner. So I guess that's my little compartment. What are some of the things Lee has done to keep moving forward? I probably don't handle it the way... She needs me to all the time. Uh, from the time Lily got diagnosed, all I knew was we had to get her through it. And so I didn't take any time to really grieve or, or um, probably didn't support her like I, like she needed. Men do handle things like that. They just get become so task and goal-oriented maybe just try not to think about it, not not focus on it, and 
you know, and, and that probably, as far as our relationship, that's probably one, been one of the biggest struggles. <laughs> it was so much easier for me to just distract myself, focus on other things, and I kept working while she was while she was off, since we worked for the same group, to make it easier on them so they didn't have two people out. And while the Baker family has their different emotional outlets, a place where they have found a lot of support is in the community here in Oxford, specifically at their church. Our church, we go to First Baptist, and they there was one particular evening where Lily developed a blood clot because of one of the chemotherapy medications that went from her groin all the way down to her left foot. We were terrified, and not only was she newly diagnosed with leukemia and starting on high doses of chemo, but she had to have surgery to remove the blood clot. She was going to be put to sleep, and she had to be paralyzed for a week. And we honestly didn't know if she was going to live, and we didn't know if she'd make it through the surgery. The surgery itself was highly risky. She might lose her leg and could lose her life. Never been so afraid, praying, like, on my hands and knees on the floor praying. Church, they put together a prayer service specifically for Lily. They had um, a large number of the church members got together. They had someone playing the guitar and all just prayed for her that night. And we felt it. This sounds crazy, but we looked out the window of the little room we were staying in and we saw a rainbow over St. Jude as we were being prayed for. And we knew it was going to be okay. She wasn't going to be okay. Um, That stands out in my mind. And, of course, they did do dinners. They just fed us, took care of us. We came home. Our lawn was mowed. Our house was clean. Everything was taken care of. People paid bills that we didn't even know we were receiving. Um, Literally just picked us up and took care of us. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Tough times tend to either soften our hearts to God or harden them. And it definitely has strengthened both Lee and Nicole's faith. I'm from Seattle and moved to Jackson, Tennessee about eight years ago. And it's it's a different culture. Um, People don't really speak about religion. And so I probably was not as strong in faith as... I should have been or even knew that I wanted to be moved here and it became a big part of my life. Lee's from Mississippi and he's a Baptist and we got married and I still think that without Lily's situation, I personally would not have grown as close to God as I needed to be. And us as a couple and a family, I really feel like it's strengthened our faith, our relationship with God, um, just have stronger faith now than ever before. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Nicole and Lee Baker, their daughter Lily, and my goodness, family, faith, and friends. That's the social capital we talk a lot about here on this show, and it's what's to stay in this family, and I can't wait to get to the other side. You're going to hear a really redemptive and really beautiful resolution to this remarkable story. The Baker Family Story, here on Our American Stories.
return to the Baker family story, and we pick up with the husband, Lee, sharing about the strengthening of his faith through Lily's cancer. Um, it, I mean, my faith certainly got stronger. I think everyone goes through periods where, you, you know, it may get a little weaker during it because you, you ask so many questions, of, you know, why would God allow this to happen, things like that. And, uh, but when, when you get into uh, something like cancer and then everything else that went along with that kid and what we went through, you end up with that's all you do have. And then you start building. It starts to, you know, strengthen from that. And, and it was like we all, all we had left there for a little while. And then, you know, we started to see prayers answered. And, I mean, it's really my faith has gotten a lot stronger. And, and we felt so, you know, defenseless. It took, it took forever before I realized, or to me, it, it seemed like it took forever before I realized that I was pretty much just getting myself through it and not, um, not helping uh, get her through it. It's something that if I could do differently, you know, I probably would have. There are a lot of resources there. Uh, at St. Jude with uh, counselors and, you know, uh, grief counselors. And I probably would have talked to people more, took more advice. One of the things you want to do early on is seclude yourself from the other families. And there are people that come around and try to talk to you and tell you what they've been through. And you're, you're not even ready to accept that your kids got cancer. And so you distance yourself from them and you would avoid them. And and you don't take any of their advice and you don't, you're not gonna ask for help and you, it takes a long time before you start accepting the help they offered. No one should have to go through something like this alone. Thankfully, the Bakers haven't had to because not just their church, but their local Chick-fil-A did something especially special for Lily to make sure the Bakers knew they had support. What happened at Chick-fil-A on your birthday? The big printer campaign. We were completely surprised. Chick-fil-A is Lily's favorite restaurant. Uh, she has to take steroids once a month, and she gets so hungry. And all she wants to eat is chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A. So she's there all the time. She draws them pictures. They know her. And we thought it was appropriate to have her birthday party there. And we thought it was just going to be a regular birthday party. We had about 12 of her friends, had some little prizes planned, but, you know, nothing big. And we got there, and I saw the old Miss cheerleaders. I didn't think anything of it. And I was like, oh, they're probably hungry after a practice or something. And, you know, didn't think anything. But then shortly after we got there, the Chick-fil-A cow came out in a princess tutu and a troll's hat. It was a troll's-themed birthday party. Lily was hysterical. She was just so excited. And then, before we knew it, everyone in the restaurant broke out in a flash mob. There was the ROTC, the Revelettes, the Oxford cheerleaders. Everyone was there in a troll hat dancing to Lily's favorite music, troll songs. And it was such a surprise, wasn't it? We were all surprised. I was in tears the whole time. It was just so special. She sings all day long every day. There's nothing that gets her down. I had no idea about it. I, 
I don't you, I don't get involved in the parties and everything anyway. Uh, so they just pretty much told me where to be and when, and it was pretty amazing. Here's Lance Reed, owner and operator of the local Chick-fil-A. My marketing director, Lee Fife, uh, she approached me because she knew the family, and um, she had told me that it was uh, Lily's birthday. Lily had a birthday already scheduled, and Lee wanted to do something really remarkable for Lily, knowing that story. And so I told Lee, I said, hey, go out and make it happen. And so Lee Fife, our marketing director, she went out and approached uh, Oxford schools, and she got the... Um, uh, Ole Miss cheer and dance team and all of them involved and they worked on this flash mob and so when Lily showed up for her birthday we had the cow and and a, and a bunch of the Ole Miss and Oxford cheer people and ROTC and others in there and they did this big flash mob for her right in the store and it was such a, a an incredible um, uh, thing to see there and just the excitement on Lily's face, and uh, it just it just really made her day. For us, one of our big hearts from a Chick-fil-A standpoint is that, you know, we're talking about always, how do we have a positive influence or a positive impact on the lives that we come into contact with? And so it was great. Some of our team members participated in the flash mob and other things, but it was great for them to be able to see and experience that right there in the store. It was very, very, very impactful for them. Over the last year, the bakers have had to learn Quite a lot. What kind of advice would Nicole give to those in her situation? I think just knowing that you're not alone, just to open your heart to the things that people offer you. It's really easy to have pride and to say no. Like, you know, we, we've always worked. We take care of our family. People wanted to give us donations. People wanted to give us things. And my initial reaction was, no, we don't need it. You know, there's there's needy people out there. We're not those people. And I wanted to reject what people wanted to do for us. Um, and it took me a while to realize and a friend telling me that this is their blessing to do something for you as well. So don't don't take away other people's blessings. And by allowing other people to help us, it, it has helped me. So it's hard to let down the pride and to accept others into your life. But once you do it, it'll benefit all. Lee also has some advice of his own for the dads out there. The only thing I would tell them is, you know, that the, the people at St. Jude, they're going to, or the can't, whatever cancer center, they're going to take care of the kid. And you've got to take care of the whole picture, the whole, you know, your family and you can try to do that by getting back to work as quickly as possible and keeping everything going at home. But the, the thing that I would tell the fathers is to, if it takes counseling or, or whatever it takes to, to make sure that your relationship is staying strong um, and that you're you know, actually supporting your, your wife, you know, you got to do whatever it takes to to make sure that you're that you're uh, fulfilling that responsibility. Lee goes on to share more about the cancer community and how getting involved can really help in the midst of all the emotions. You know, we, we're getting, we get involved in, in some things with fundraising and, and stuff. Nicole uh, ran uh, the St. Jude Half Marathon this past year and raised over $10,000 uh, for, the, for the kids. And... Um, it was. Uh, it's one of the one of the times you get to see the, the happiness 
once you once you get through the worst part of it and you can start getting involved in giving back. It's like there's a bigger purpose. Yeah. But Nicole knows from experience that realizing that bigger purpose doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time to get there, like Lee was saying. Um, when you're first diagnosed, I was in, I was angry, I was in denial, and my friends said that they noticed when I walked through the hallways at St. Jude, I kept my head down because I didn't want to look around. I didn't want to see all the sadness, the bald kids. I didn't want to think of her being bald. I was like, this isn't happening, and I don't want any part of this. And other moms wanted to talk to me, and I was like, no, I don't want to be in the cancer mom club. Like, don't talk to me. Now I'm the mom trying to talk to all the other moms, and you do want to be in the club. Um, it's just quite a process. It's just mm-hmm. not about Lily having cancer. There's a bigger purpose for all of us, and it's amazing to see her, even as a four-year-old, four-year-old to realize that. Um, and we see she's already sympathetic and empathetic towards other children with cancer and has a giving heart. So it's not just about us and this little family. It's like, now what can we do? Like people for years have fundraised and done research and we had no idea what was going on. Basically just living selfishly. Like, oh, you know, like what are we gonna do this weekend? Or let's see if Lily can get involved in soccer. And you just realize it's not about any of that. Um, This last week, Thursday, when we went for treatment, Lily, It was literally a year from her diagnosis, March 14th. She went up to the hospital room where we stayed for about the first month, and she was handing out umbrellas. Matilda Jane, a little fundraiser, and they had umbrellas for Lily to give out to other kids with cancer. And she walked in the room, and she was like, here you go. Don't worry. You're not going to be in here for very long. It's going to be okay. And the parents started crying. And I was like, here, and they said, how is she? And I said, this is a year later, and look, she's fine. Because they were in our shoes, literally in that room, on that couch. They were crying, and I was like, this is your life a year later. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Just seeing her, she went in other rooms, and she was giving the kids hugs and kisses, and it was just so special. And now... It's crazy to say, but leukemia has a purpose in her life and all of our lives, and I think it's going to be what we can do for other people. When you wish upon a star as dreamers do. This is Faith Garcia from All American Stories. Split cards for 
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to innovation and business, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, and we'll put them up on the air. They're some of our best stories, and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's straight out of the history books. And we love telling stories about America's past. Annie Oakley was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror, she couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. It is no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books and movies and the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. Here's Faith Garcia with the story of Annie Oakley. Late in 1865, a fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child from a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to walk home from the mill, 15 miles away. It wasn't until midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother, Susan, had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here, she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice for the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon, she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Here's Old West historian Virginia Scharf, Annie Oakley biographer Shul Casper, and Paul Fees, former senior curator at the Buffalo Bill Historical Center in Cody, Wyoming. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. 
One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff. There was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. And they told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years, in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipping into a crowded railroad car and escaped home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor, and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap-and-ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she'd reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner, earning a living with her gun. Here's historian Mary Stang. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm, and her prowess with a shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl, she was good for anybody. Here's Annie Oakley biographer, Glenda Riley. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Here's firearms historian R.L. Wilson. Shooting was of such immense uh, popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver, uh, evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-twenties who was starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we'll pick up this story, how Annie meets Frank Butler, and so much more. The story of Annie Oakley, here on Our American Stories.
we return to the story of Annie Oakley, this world-class female shooter, and the story of a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who just happened to be passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot anybody. Let's return to Faith. Here again is Oakley biographer Cheryl Casper. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Here again is R.L. Wilson, Paul Fees, and Virginia Scharf. Frank Butler, this already professional shooter, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly for 25 for 24 birds, and on the 25th bird, he missed. Uh, but he was a very gracious loser. He, uh, he thanked her for the match, complimented her on her skill, and then courted her for a year. <laughs> There's a charming little girl. She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy. You'd fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15. And yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him, and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why, and uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Frank and Annie, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a body songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Here's theater historian Don Wilmoth. Variety was largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre and comedy. Uh, There were suggestive lyrics and songs. uh, And there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It 
was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body, a calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. Here's old West historians Joy Casson and Roger McGrath. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. Women in the West were just like the men, enterprising, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. West really selected and filtered people. And the, the women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing most of the things the men were, but lacked the same degree of physical prowess. The women in the West were simply the very best America had to offer. And what better example of that than Annie Oakley? Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard, and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. When the circus season is ending, the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans, and it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job. So they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, and part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of the life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, People flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure, and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative, of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. 
audiences saw the real stagecoach. They saw real soldiers. They saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses. There were steer. There were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill, but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter, athlete, and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Miss Annie Oakley! She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive. Like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. And when we return, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And by the way, that Frank Butler did what he did, making himself second fiddle. Well, Desi Arnaz would do the same thing with Lucille Ball. And of course, George Burns would do it with his bride. Smart men. And by the way, we love doing these rips from history. And as always, all the things we do related to history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Frank Butler and, of course, Annie Oakley. and we left off finding out how blessed and lucky she was to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents and just got out of the way and supported her. My goodness, even today, that's a hard thing to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this terrific story. Here again is Cheryl Casper, R.L. Wilson, and Paul Fees. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one, and then two at a time, and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. She could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. And then she'd go to six. Her 
her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom, things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a, a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways, she could split the card in two, which is a pretty amazing shot. Occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she, she could always hit the target. She was somebody who never missed. I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance, and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Buffalo Bill Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new, a woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence. That, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. Here's Old West historian Elliot West. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, but what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with, a, uh, with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved, but in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty, then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains. And he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. Here's historian Donald Fixico. When Sitting Bull first saw him, she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot, 
became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troops sailed from New York Harbor bound for London to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of American Indians huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank Butler, but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Here again is R.L. Wilson. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for the both of them. Here again is Cheryl Casper and Paul Fees. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. To Annie Oakley, life was a battle. She uses those terms, the battle of life. It wasn't something that you skated through easily. It's something you went out and did constant battle. Just about everything she did, she felt she had to work harder than, than anybody to accomplish. On May 9th, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde, and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Here again is Elliot West. The English were fascinated by America as a place where you could escape the traps of the modern industrial world. They saw America as a place of uh, wide open spaces, a place of uh, the free individual uh, in the wilderness. And I think Cody's Wild West show and Annie Oakley herself spoke to that mixed appeal of America to the English. 
And when we come back, the final installment of this remarkable story. And you can picture just about everything here. Superb job by our team. When we come back, the rest of the story, the final part of Annie Oakley's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to Our American Stories and the final installment of the Annie Oakley story. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here again is Mary Stang and Paul Feese. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl. But at the same time, she was a Victorian woman who was there, after all, to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. All of the performers of the Wild West were invited to give a special performance for the Queen of England. The performers were presented to the prince, Prince Edward, and his wife, Princess Alexandra. And Annie Oakley marched up and shook Alexandra's hand. Instead of walking up and curtsying to the king-to-be, she shook Alexandra's hand. You'll have to excuse me, please, because I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. Annie Oakley to the Prince of Wales, 1887. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day, Annie Oakley appeared. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. Annie becomes the toast of London. Some papers even said she was more popular than Cody. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, in late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. Here again is Cheryl Casper. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause, or none at all, she insisted. 
Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poor, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the king of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs to destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1983, the World's Fair opened in Chicago and glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. Ironically, the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11th, 1903. Here's Paul Fees. Well, of course it wasn't true. She was so outraged. It so went contrary to her character that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000 but after expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them, as naturally as they know how to handle babies. Here again is Mary Stang and Cheryl Casper. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, 
Cooley held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. Here again is Paul Fees. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3rd, 1926, Annie Oakley died at her home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. 18 days later, Frank Butler, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the fairy places she had roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others, will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe, even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Faith Garcia and Greg Hengler as well. And I just can't get the picture out of my head of Sitting Bull with this young lady and him calling her a little sure shot out on the trail. And that is the circuit, I should say, because sooner or later Sitting Bull had had enough of the big cities and just wanted to get back home. And I also keep thinking about all of those young ladies and women that Annie Oakley was training to... Well, to take care of themselves, to not be afraid. And I think of my own girls, my wife and my daughter, and I think there are eight firearms between them in my home, and they know how to use them, and they know how to take care of themselves, and they are not afraid. What a tradition, what a story. And my goodness, eight years old, tragedy befalls her, 11 years old, three years straight, she spends as practically a slave, comes back home, earns her keep, and ultimately goes out on the road to become an international celebrity, all while trying to maintain her Victorian dignity at a time when, well, so much else was challenging her femininity. The story of Annie Oakley, and in a sense, her husband, Frank Butler, too, dying only 18 days apart. And that happens so often, folks. 
in great love affairs. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Sharpshooters.